Good morning, everyone at home, and good morning. We have a few people in the room. These are invite-only, some servant leaders. They, they probably think they're special and fa- highly favored in God's eyes, but they're here today. They're some of our servants who are helping us practice as we get ready uh, for Regather next Sunday, and I shared it in an email a few weeks ago, but just my pastor's heart is calling us to unity as we think about our Regather. For some folks, are eager. They're ready to go and ready to be here. And we welcome you to God's house uh, beginning next Sunday and all the fall, of course. And some of you, because of medical, personal, family reasons, are going to want to stay at home. And we are going to do what the Bible teaches us to do. And we're not going to judge one another. So we just want to set that course and again, invite anybody willing and ready to come join us next week. Before we dive in today, I want to kind of give you an idea of where we're going. And leaders, humans, want to be careful doing that. The fourth chapter of James tells us, uh, don't boast about tomorrow. Don't tell people what you're going to do. Hey, tomorrow we're going to do this. Tomorrow we're going to do that. That letter was written, by the way, at about AD 70. How true is that in 2020? Anybody made plans? Anybody thinking about making plans in 2020? Be careful boasting about what you're going to do tomorrow. But here's where I think we're going to be going over the next uh, five weeks. As we regather next Sunday, we'll have a message that I'm calling the door, the table, and the garden. It's a standalone message. We're going to talk about spaces and rhythms, and I believe uh, our future, because in a way, uh, we're kind of becoming a startup again. We're going to celebrate nine years as a church, but in some ways, we're starting up again. And so I think this will be a clarion call with some clarity of some things that are important, the door, the table, and the garden next week. Sunday, August 9th, and then after that, a four-week series of faith and culture, and we're going to look at some things uh, important, uh, the virus in the church, five shifts that I I believe we should be making in the time that we're living to ready us for the future, uh, rooted in ancient truth of God, race and justice beyond the hashtags. You know, God says some things in his word about his heart uh, for justice, for racial justice and unity and reconciliation. And he, his words are very, very strong. He doesn't stumble when he talks about it. So we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks and also the church and hypocrisy and then bitter divides. You know, we have more things dividing us today and really than any other time I've been alive. And we have new tools to help us increase that divide and exacerbate it and worsen it. So we're going to look at these uh, four things in this faith and culture series. Doesn't that look kind of good? I'm excited about it. I hope you'll join us uh, on that. So today as we uh, begin, I want to ask you a question. And the question is, probably the most simple question you're going to be asked today, do you believe? Profound question. I don't know that there's a more important one. Do you believe, and I know I can see a few of you uh, beyond your mask in the room this morning, and I see some furrowed brows. Your your brows are not covered up, right? And I can see maybe furrowed. Do you believe? There's, There's something just that's not so simple about the question. Who are you to say it's a simple question? I mean, it it seems simple, uh, but then you began to grow up a little bit, and you wonder, is it belief in God and Jesus and the Bible and angels and the afterlife and the supernatural? Uh, Is it full of myths and contradictions and superstition? Is it irrational? Is it on par with other things that we've been taught in life? What about Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy uh, and the stork? You know, the stork brings the babies, right? Do you believe? Do you believe? Alfred Tennyson once said that 
He who doubts is one who thinks. So if someone says to you, I don't have any doubts. I am so certain about it. You can call them. You can just say, I give you permission to say, dude, you're brain dead. To live, to think, is to doubt. It's to have doubts. Here's how the great thinker, the one who lived most of his life as an agnostic in an academic and intellectual environment, came to faith in Jesus and became one of the most prolific and astute writers about faith uh, in modern history. Who am I talking about? C.S. Lewis. He said this for opening perspective this morning. Now that I am a Christian, I do have human moods in which the whole thing looks improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Preacher friend, friend of mine, I was standing next to him about a year ago. Someone walked up, walked up to us. This person knew my preacher friend. He said, hey, how's your son doing? This was his college-age son. And my preacher friend responded. He goes, oh, he's fine. He's an atheist this week. Young people especially change their beliefs. I won't get a show of hands because you'll feel kind of maybe some judgment or unease, but I wonder how many of you have changed beliefs. I grew up in kind of in a tradition where if you change beliefs or if your beliefs evolved, well, that wasn't healthy. That meant you were going wayward or you were backsliding a bit. And I hope as you participate in the life of this church, particularly over these next few weeks and hear about the door, the table, and the garden and our faith and culture series and the rest of this message, that you'll think a little more maturely with that. We all have doubts. Everybody doubts. Atheists have doubts. First Timothy chapter 6, we're going to close out this series this week. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you're at home, wherever you are today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read a few verses, um, 11 through something, and then we'll, we'll pop down and read a couple of more. We're going to skip some. I'm not being um, deceptive up here today. We're skipping a few verses because we looked at them last week when we talked about being rich, verses 17 through 19. But here we are, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But you, man of God, remember this is Paul, old guy, talking to young guy, dropping some wisdom that he needs and that you and I need. So, but you, man of God, and remember, man of God, even that was a suspect to some because Timothy, I think I shared this with you, some people, some scholars believe that Timothy could have even been late in his teenage years when he was leading a church, a brand new church at Ephesus. And so Paul later tells him, hey, don't, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but be an example. Young people can be an example. That's one of the lessons that we can take from 1 Timothy is we need mentors and young people already can be examples. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who, while uh, testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. That's a problematic statement for faith, isn't it? To him be honor and might forever. Amen. This passage, this stretch of 1 Timothy, talks to us about faith. I don't know if you 
picked up on it, but it talks to us about how we can depart from our faith and how we can wander from our faith. This week, Tuesday morning at staff, with our staff around a table, we read this passage yet again and we talked about it and Van Harden reminded us that today it's not so much departing or wondering, but the, the word is deconstructing. A lot of people are deconstructing their faith. I don't freak out. I don't panic. It's a healthy and inevitable part of someone thinking about faith in this world today. You can depart from the faith. You can you could wander from the faith, but Paul says, pursue it and fight the good fight of faith. So this morning, I want to ask three questions about doubt. That's a cue for any note takers today. Here's the first question about doubt. Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? There's a host, a myriad of very valid and good reasons. I want to touch on a few of them today. And I want to say with 1 Timothy 6 as the backdrop about the possibility of wondering or departing from our faith and also the possibility, the invitation to fight the good fight of faith and pursue our faith. I want to talk about someone in Jesus's life when it comes to doubt and having doubts. Any, any idea who I'm going to talk about today? Not Thomas. But a man named John the Baptist, J.T.B. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. He went first. He went before him, um, mo- motivated and inspired by the great prophet Isaiah. He knew that a Messiah was coming, and he knew the calling of God in his life. And so he was there. He was the one who said some really cool things as Jesus was appearing on the scene. He said, repent Repent for the kingdom of God is coming near. He also said, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And many of you know, he was the one who baptized Jesus. And in the baptism recorded for us in John and Matthew, we know that he heard the voice of the Father saying to Jesus, or declaring that this is my son whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. So John the Baptist for context, as one who had seen and who had heard, who had prophesied, who had called it out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty important statement, isn't it? Cosmic and global, universal, just massive. And that is JTB, John the Baptist. But look later, because you see, a starting faith is not necessarily a staying faith. Think with me. A starting faith is not necessarily a staying faith. A family came to see me a few years ago. They set up an appointment and sat down with me, and they were worried that their son uh, declared that he was an atheist. He was five years old. And so I listened to their concerns and all, but he had come home from school and said, I don't believe in God, and they were freaking out, and I just couldn't get past the fact that he's five years old. I didn't have much to say that day as a pastor other than he's five years old. He's going to go through a lot of stages. Here's the thing. So are you. And so are you even today. But a, a starting faith is not necessarily a staying faith. So here's John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 recorded for us, verses two and three, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples to ask him, him being Jesus, 
Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Does that strike anybody as odd, sad, bewildering? Or, or after all that, the voice of the Father, seeing the Spirit descend like a dove, being with Jesus and seeing all that he saw, being the one to declare, seeing all of that, experiencing all of that. He asked, are you the one or we should, should we be waiting for someone else? So remember our question is question number one, why do we doubt? The first reason we doubt learning from John the Baptist is personal circumstances. For John the Baptist, it was prison, a literal prison, horrifying, dark, terrible conditions. A friend of mine is leading the way in our state of Mississippi in 2020 and beyond for prison reform. Some of you may be a little bit dialed in, but the conditions are quite horrific. And when you think of what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, we probably ought to play a part in it. Think, though, just for a second, use your imagination, how bad would a prison been in that world? And there's John the Baptist. And look, John the Baptist is an outdoor guy. Like nobody's going to raise their hand and say, hey, I'll go to prison. I'll, I'll volunteer. But if you're an outdoor guy, I mean, John the Baptist wore sandals. Uh, he had the beard. He wore clothes made of camel's hair. He was a field and stream outdoors guy. And then now, he's confined. He's wallowing in filth and isolation, awaiting execution, and what happens? There are doubts. And when you get in circumstances that also are dark, where you feel the walls closing in, anybody feel that this morning? Anybody at home today feel that? The, the walls are closing in, and you're not behind bars, but you are. And there's pain, and... It's not what you want, and you don't see a way out. There's this stuckness. The psalmist in Lament would say, it's a pit, it's a miry pit of clay, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And that's one of the reasons that we doubt. My marriage is suffocating me. I can't have a child. My kid is alienated. I don't know how I'm going to get past this particular thing, and it hurts. Why do we doubt? The first reason is personal circumstances. The second reason I want to give you this morning is that we question what God is doing. Again, Isaiah, the part of the prophecy that inspired John the Baptist, I don't know if you know this, was when Isaiah said, hey, this guy's coming. All right? He's coming, and part of what he's going to do is set the captives free. He's going he's gonna to release those in prison. And John the Baptist is thinking, uh, God, here's what you said. Now, let me be tender for a moment. Let me be tender. It's not that I don't want to get in trouble with any of you. Uh, that's impossible and probably not a good task for a preacher to have. But I, I want you to stay with me for just a second on this. It's really easy for us to lose our faith when we put words in God's mouth. 
When we say, God, you promised this. Now, I, would, I want you to be a person who knows the word. We'll talk about that at the end, who knows the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that you'll put Christ's word in you and you'll learn his promises and take hold of his promises. The goodness of your God is a father. First Timothy chapter six, we looked at it last week. He gives you richly all things to enjoy. So he gives you good promises. I want to testify today to everybody watching. Look, God has been good in my life and I am the recipient of his good gifts. But we get in trouble when we twist his words to suit our desires. When we attach promises to God that he actually hadn't made for us. And John the Baptist is thinking, hey, you said you were going to let the prisoners go. And that's where I'm at. So why do we doubt? That's the first question. Why do we doubt? We doubt because of personal circumstances. We doubt because we question what God is doing. Another reason that we have doubts is pride. Psalm 10, 4, if you're a note taker, the 10th Psalm, the f- chapter 10, the fourth verse. Man, the proud man does not leave room in his thoughts for God. Let's let you out of this for a second. Think of Jeffrey Epstein. Think about his story. Think about at what point in his life did he say, God, I don't have any room for you. I'm going to blatantly ignore or disregard what you say is true, and I'll live like I am God. At what point did the money, at what point did the power, at what point did all that he have make him say, there is no room in my thoughts for God, and I will become an appetite. I will follow my own appetites wherever wealth and debauchery can take me. But you and I have our own pride. How does pride manifest itself in all of us? It manifests itself in an inability to deal with our heart issues, the stuff that's inside. It manifests itself in an unwillingness to bow our knee. And some of us have that. A fourth and final reason that I want to give you this morning that we doubt beyond personal circumstances, questioning God's work and pride is just simply, I'll put it this way, we want to. We want to doubt. Two names, I don't know if you recognize either of these. Uh, One, uh, anybody, anybody recognize these names? Demas is uh, mentioned by Paul. Now we're in, we've been in 1 Timothy. Demas is mentioned in the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, the church at Ephesus and beyond. And he calls him out and he says, Demas has departed. He has departed from me, meaning the faith. That's the implication there. Having loved this present world. We doubt, we wonder and depart from the faith when our love for the world is greater than our sense of transcendence than our sense of the sovereignty of God in our lives. And that's the route that Demas took. Anybody recognize this name? Hint, Book of Esther. This is Vashti. And she might be the most noble, in my opinion here, of this book. And she did the right thing at great cost, at the risk of losing everything. She did the right thing as an act of faith, and then she lost everything. Faith comes with a cost. Faith comes with a commitment. Faith comes with a risk. And there are lots of people. Jesus talked about a narrow road and a wide road. And the wide road is the life that says, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to make a commitment. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give it 
all. So why do we doubt personal circumstances? We question God's work and all that. God, what are you doing? You said this, you made this promise, but here's my present reality. Our pride, and then we want to. Second question that I present to you this morning is this. What does Jesus think about us when we doubt? Notice the wording of the question here. Every word's important. What does Jesus think about us when we doubt? What does Jesus think about us? He does. He does. What does he think about us when we doubt? Not just our doubts, but us when we doubt. There's a story that Mark gives us in the best-selling book of all time when someone says, Lord, I believe, but finish the sentence if you're here in the house this morning. Lord, I believe, but anybody? Help my unbelief. Ever been there? Like there's this proclivity, this sense of like, okay, I'm with you, God, but help me. Like, isn't that one of the most human prayers? Like that's, that's me on the weekly with something. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We know the famous story of doubting Thomas. If you said the word doubting, people would know to fill in the blank with the name Thomas. Here, John the Baptist, we see at the end of Matthew, it says, this is post-resurrection, by the way, it says they worshiped him. And then Matthew includes for us, but some doubted. Even in that crowd, they worshiped him but some doubted. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus praises faith. Pastor Andy Stanley says, if you look at the Gospels, this the only virtue that Jesus ever praises is faith. But listen, he never says, Jesus never says, you doubted, I'm done with you. That man that said, I believe, but help my unbelief, that's not, that was, Jesus met him with gentleness and respect and compassion. So he did with Thomas. So he does with John the Baptist. In fact, take a look at it now in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly, I tell you, just the first part of this. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus never says, you'll never find an instance, though he praises faith and calls us to faith, he would rather you and I live in faith than live in fear. But he never says to any human being, nor to you today, oh, you're having doubts, I'm done with you. Jude, New Testament letter, just a handful of verses, says, be merciful to those who doubt. Can I just say, church, can we be that place? Can we be that place? I'm reading story after story of people who are deconstructing their faith. They're wandering from it. They're departing from it. And in each story, there's almost universally a common thread. None of them felt safe to express their doubts. And I said on my Instagram account last night, praying and looking forward to today, that, listen, it's not doubt in and of itself that causes people to lead the faith. It's unexpressed doubt. And so that's going to lead us here to this uh, third question and our final one. Um, Why do we doubt? What does Jesus think about us when we doubt? And then finally here, how can we meaningfully deal with our doubts? So I want to give you um, a few things in this regard. How do we deal with our doubts? The first is express your doubts honestly. What did John the Baptist do? Look at this verse in Matthew. He says the following. 
Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Express your doubts. Second point, I want to give you right after this, what, what, how, how we deal with our doubt is this. Don't just ex- express them, but examine. No, no, back up one if you would, please. There's another, yeah. One other, is there one before that? Nope. Okay, we want to go to the source. We want to make sure that we go to the source. Not only do we express our doubts honestly, but we go to the source of those doubts. For John the Baptist, it was straight to the heart of Jesus. Straight to him. I want to hear from you. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, hey, look at not just what I said, but look at what I did. If you want your faith to grow in a person, I don't know if some of you are here today, whether you're here or home, you're probably sitting next to someone and trust is a big thing. Nod your head if you're in the room. Trust is kind of a big thing. That's kind of what keeps things going with the person you're sitting next to. So it's not just what the person says. If you're sitting alone or home alone watching this, think about the relationships in your life. Trust is the thing, or a lack thereof, that can destroy a relationship. And John says, hey, Jesus, I want to go, I want you to tell me. I want to go to the source. Listen to me. Don't go to second hand. Go to the source. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Straight to him. There's a lot of confusion in our day among young people. I was victimized by this when I was a freshman in college. The very first class I had as a freshman, my faith was attacked. And we think that we're called to have to understand everything about our faith. Now, it's good. We'll talk about this as we end in a moment. But listen, focus on Jesus. Focus on the person of Jesus. So beyond expressing your doubts, honestly, this was it, earnestly, seek the answers, but go to the source, not secondhand, go to the Savior, go to the person of Jesus. And thirdly, this, examine the evidence critically. Start with Jesus's existence. Nothing will be easier. In fact, one scholar uh, put it this way. You really don't need much on this. You could look at your phone, look at the newspaper, look at the date today, and you'll see that it's all organized around the life of Jesus Christ. Y'all, he lived. No one in their right minds can deny that he existed. Philip Schaff, the certainty of Jesus Christ is as certain as my own identity. The existence of Jesus is a fact. We move from the existence of Jesus to thinking about the claims of Jesus, okay? When you examine the evidence critically, you think of the existence of Jesus and the claims of Jesus. What were the claims of Jesus? John himself says that Jesus made seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am God. I am, I am the Father 
are one. If you do not believe in me, you will die apart from me in your sin. Jesus made claims. He made really bold claims. Now think about it. Would you ever make a claim like that? Have you ever done that? Kind of an absurd thought, but just think of if here today there was someone in the middle of the pew, middle section here, about the 12th row back, and let's just pretend his name was Matt. And let's say a guy named Matt stood up and interrupted everybody. Some of you are looking around. There is no Matt as far as I know. But let's say Matt stood up and Matt said, hey, I am God. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection of life. I'm the, on and on and on. If Matt made those claims, our response would be, <clears throat> no, you're not. Prove it. But what happens to our pretend person named Matt? If he makes those claims, right, he's going to look foolish. Like, why make the claim? Somehow, some way, we're going to start poking and prodding around Matt. We're going to want to know who he is because he made a claim to be God. He made a claim that he could forgive you for your sins. And if you came today saying, what can wash away my sins? You may be looking for Matt. But Matt would need to back up his claims. And you know what Matt would need to do? Matt would need to live a perfect life. Do you think Matt could do that? Forget pretend Matt for a second. What about you? What about me? If I were to make a claim like Jesus made that people would line up over here. All of you could. You could line up right here. Many people would. My family would go first, and they could tell you story after story. You could tell story after story of how I'm not perfect. If you're on staff here, you may not want to do that. But story after story of why I am not perfect. I couldn't back up that claim. Could you? Well, how could Jesus? Jesus lived a perfect life. Do you know there's historical factual correspondence to that very reality. And Jesus not only made the claims, he backed it up with a perfect life. Even Pilate, the one who was looking for the flaws, that's kind of the point I'm making. If somebody wants to look for your flaws, they probably could find it. I, 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 look, let me turn it on. I, I see a few folks I know. I, I know a few of your flaws, right? Pontius Pilate, the ruling authority of the Roman world, they would look, and even Pontius Pilate says, I could find no fault in this man. Jesus, as you examine the evidence critically, you think of his existence, you think of his claims, and think of his credibility. The first little subplot I want to ask you to investigate or explore is Jesus' credibility when it comes to his teaching. His teaching is incomparable. A friend of mine posted on Twitter last week. He said, just look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at chapter 6 and chapter 7. Jesus, he, he asserted many things, but five things he presented to hearts in his day. Five things he talked about. Performative righteousness, greed, anxiety, practicing your righteousness before other people, and wasting what is good and holy. Performative righteousness. Look at me, look at me, I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Look at me, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm on the latest cause, I'm on the latest issue. Look at all the good things that I'm doing. Greed, anxiety, judging other people and wasting what is good and holy. Sitting on your hands and sitting on your gifts and all that God has made you. And those five things are ubiquitous on social media today. The teachings of Jesus, here's my point, if you're still with me, here's my point. The teachings of Jesus will probe and penetrate your life like nothing else. And I'm here today to testify to you 
of that reality. His teaching is incomparable. Not only that, think about the transformation of lives. These band of men at the time that followed him closely, they all died for the cause. There's not a person in here. There's not a person watching at home. There's not a person that any of us know that would die for a lie. And when you look at his life and you look at his teachings, the incomparable teachings, you look at the transformation. Look, I've never met anybody that said, I didn't have any peace or joy, and then I opened up my life to the law of natural selection. Not against science here. Not at all against science. Big fan of science. I'm actually burdened by the church today that some of us are buying into some conspiracy theories and disregarding science. All right, I love you. I love you. Just give me a moment to pastor here. Big fan of science. But I've never seen any of that change a person's heart. Nor the law. Anybody, the law changed. The law has changed your behavior. It's made you do some things you didn't want to do. I, I'm not, I don't know that you're thrilled to wear masks today. The mayor's mandate, the governor's order, like there's things that, but it doesn't change your heart. It might alter your behavior, but it doesn't change your heart. But Jesus changes lives. His credibility, his existence, his claims, his teaching, and of course, his resurrection. There's a guy named Simon Greenleaf. His, if his name was Simon Garfunkel, we could dismiss this. But Simon Greenleaf, stay with me for a second, was a professor of law, a professor of law at Harvard, dean of the Harvard Law School for more than two decades, recognized by most in the field as the world's leading expert on legal evidence. You with me? Wow. Here's what he said. There's no better documented historical evidence than that for the resurrection of Christ. It happened. The only person who's ever predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and pulled it off is Jesus Christ. And this morning, for all the doubts that come crop in, I'm asking you to express your doubts honestly to earnestly seek the answers, to examine the evidence critically, and then fourth and final, to make every effort, to make every effort. Write down, note takers, 2 Peter 1.5. 2 Peter 1.5 says this very phrase. Now, Paul uses this, this phrase in First Timothy. We read it. I don't know if you noticed it. Make every effort to pursue. And then Peter uses it. 2 Peter 1.5, make every effort to add, here you go, to add to your faith, to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge. So I had a conversation with some mid-20s folks this week as we were examining evidence critically. And I said that very thing, that faith and knowledge are not at odds. Do you see that? Make every effort, 2 Peter 1.5, to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Let me ask you today, are you growing in your knowledge? Are you going to secondhand sources? Is most of your time spent scrolling and looking for people who believe what you believe? How much are you reading on people who've deconstructed their faith versus how much are you reading 
from the life and teachings and impact of Jesus Christ. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And the same thing in 1 Timothy 6. He says, I think it's chapter 6, verse 11. If you have an open Bible, nod your head if I'm right about this. Make every effort to pursue righteousness, goodness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Listen, if you're not growing, if you're not growing in your virtue, it's going to be easy to succumb to doubt. It's kind of stating the obvious here, but we miss it. I'm telling you, we miss it. If you're not adding to your faith these virtues, it's going to be so easy. You are ripe to depart, withdraw, or deconstruct your faith. But when you see God working as he does, make every effort. 1 Timothy 6, make every effort, 2 Peter 1, 5. Real quick, make every effort, Hebrews chapter 12. These verses, real quick, to the doubters, the ones who struggle badly, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy in 2020. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Church, I just want to say it today. We're not doing well. We are not doing well. And division and disunity and bitterness is growing. But our faith grows and something wells up when uh, us when we make every effort and we see it happening. See that no one is sexually immoral or as godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. One final verse. Verse 25 of Hebrews 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Make every effort. Bitterness, look at that, bitterness, worldliness, impurity, division, inattention, All these things, you will succumb to them. You will have a faith not worth experiencing, a faith not worth following, a faith that you will not be able to pass on, a faith that you will not be able to stay with because of what's going to creep in. So today I'm saying to you, we've asked three questions. Why do we doubt? What does Jesus think of us when we doubt? And then how can we deal meaningfully with our doubts? Express your doubts honestly. Earnestly seek answers. Examine evidence critically and make every effort. I want to put up, as we close, a few resources on the screen real quick. I think our worship team is going to make their way up as we close in a song, but just some resources that I want to give you to think about. Five resources to add to your knowledge. I was talking with some young 20s a few weeks ago, and they were saying kind of what I've experienced a little bit, where we look at our world and the problems, and then we see the church, and it's easy to lose faith in the church. And I shared with them about some friends, some men and women, black and white, Holy Post podcast. It's intelligent. It's funny, 
and it's engaging and it has lifted my faith in the work of Jesus through his people today. Reasonable faith, that's more on the science side, so it may be dry to some of you made like me, but this has meant a lot to me on the science side, the compatibility of religion and science. The Jude 3 Project, uh, this has been my commitment over the last few months to learn from people of a different skin color. And this podcast uh, is just so engaging, so engaging and so good, and it is building my faith. Why Should I Trust the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. Get it and read it if, you're, if you've been blasted by contradictions of the Bible. And then Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. I'm looking at Daniel Wagner back there who's read it. I'm looking at Chris Mixon back there who's read it. These are a couple of our staff guys. I'm asking you to read this. This woman is brilliant. Amazing writing. 12 things, uh, that, 12 chapters that people are dealing with today. So make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to your goodness, knowledge, learning. Real quick as I close, just one final thought bomb. You say, Robert, all these resources, how realistic is it? I'm going to do these. Well, some of them you can watch and listen to. Some of them you would need to read. Practices might vary on this. I'd love any follow-up conversations with you. I know that our staff would. We have some good thinkers on our team, some of our ministers. And so we would love to talk with you as you go and grow and move into your future. But think about this for a second. Jesus worked with these men. Let's just say for three years, because that's kind of the way it went. Let's, let's say eight hours a day. It was much more than that. But three years, eight hours a day, that's a total of 8,000 hours. All right, you with me? 8,000 hours, and they still had major gaps. They still had major gaps. Is their starting faith going to be their staying faith? They had major gaps. And so one hour on Sunday, as good as it is, is not enough. Add to your faith. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would in in us mind and heart lead us away from cynicism and doubt and what plagues us whether it's inattention, worldliness, impurity bitter divisions whether it is our personal circumstances where it's us questioning the promises that you've made in light of our present reality it is not enough just to intellectually know God that your, your word tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Like we know that intellectually. But when the rain falls on us personally, we don't like the fact that the Bible teaches that we're all the same and we're all in this together. And the coronavirus can get the just and the unjust, the churchgoer and the atheist. We don't like that. And we question it but we get it at times, but it's when it gets us and it's personal. Lord, our pride, our worldliness, God, whatever we've allowed to creep in, to pull us away from you. Lord, help us as parents to know how to embrace particularly our teenagers and our college students and to tell them to seek the truth that we love them unconditionally no matter what stage of faith or doubt they're going through strengthen us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.